KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. And the Oscar goes to... Boom! The house! Charlie Wachtel, David Rabinowitz, and Gary Wilmot, The 91st Academy Awards served up a record number of Oscars for black artists, including Spike Lee's first win for Best Adapted Screenplay for Black Klansmen. We all connect with our ancestors. We will have love, wisdom, regaining. we will gain our humanity. It will be a powerful moment. The 2020 presidential election is around the corner. Let's all mobilize. Let's all be on the right side of history. Make the, ro- make the moral choice between love versus hate. Let's do the right thing. You know I had to get that in there. African Americans in Hollywood have had a long, troubled, and complicated past. I'm going to explore that history with Donald Bogle, author of the new book, Hollywood Black, the stars, the films, the filmmakers from Turner Classic Movies. Welcome back to listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. This month, yet another incarnation of Shaft hits theaters, and it includes the original John Shaft, Richard Roundtree. Plus, the Sundance hit The Last Black Man in San Francisco opens, and Jordan Peele's layered horror film Us comes out on Blu-ray. So not a bad time to focus attention on blacks in Hollywood. Bogle has been writing about blacks on screen and in Hollywood for decades, and he serves as a host and commentator for TCM. His book, Hollywood Black, just came out, and it offers a comprehensive look at African-American films, stars, and directors from the silent era and up to Black Panther. But before we get to my interview, I need to take this short break, and then I'll be back to talk about Oscar Micheaux, Blaxploitation, and the films you absolutely need to see, according to Donald Bogle. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. I began my interview with Bogle by asking him to talk about his first book and about what led him to writing about blacks in Hollywood and the image of African Americans on screen. My first book, which is now in its fifth edition, is the book Toms, Coons, Mulattoes, Mammies, and Bucks, an interpretive history of blacks in American film. And then I've written other books. I did the book Brown Sugar, which was about black women in entertainment, from Bessie Smith to Beyonce. I also have done biographies of Dorothy Dandridge and Ethel Waters. The Ethel Waters biography is called Heat Wave. And I've also done a book called Bright Boulevard's Bold Dreams, the story of black Hollywood. And that looks at African-Americans in Hollywood from the early years, how they got into the movies, where they lived, how they socialized, this whole African-American community in Los Angeles. This is my ninth book now, Hollywood Black. 
most of my books do deal with African Americans in film. So it's just come out, the TCM book. It has a foreword by John Singleton, perhaps one of the last things he wrote. I also want to just reference back to your first book. When you wrote that, the book really tackles stereotypes in film. And I was wondering if you felt like that initial motivation to write a book was really to to tackle some of that and and challenge some of those images. And, And was that the first thing that you wanted to write about? Yes. I was a real movie kid. I grew up loving movies, and I saw a lot of old movies on television before there was a TCM. I had asthma as a kid, and I... I often was, not always, but I often was sort of homebound. And I would watch old movies on on TV, among other things. I was always fascinated with old movies whenever I would see an African-American in a film. And I'm talking about films from the 20s, 30s. You know, it might be the Shirley Temple movies with Bill Bojangles Robinson, or it might even be Gone with the Wind with Hattie McDaniel, and I just wondered when I saw those movies as a kid why the movies weren't about the black characters, and I always wondered where they went when they, when they uh, were off screen, and that just sparked something. But yes, in, in the first book, I very much did deal with stereotypes, and I don't think stereotypes have necessarily disappeared from the movies, black stereotypes, but certainly not the way they once were. So I wanted to deal with stereotypes, but also what was very important to me with Tom's Coons was to to deal with performances of African-American actors and actresses, because I often felt that some of these performers with their great talent, they didn't so much play these roles as they played against them to bring something of their own to these films. And a good example, I think, is Hattie McDaniel, who in Gone with the Wind, it is this mammy character, but she has uh, a degree of agency. She's assertive. She's got power. Hattie McDaniel has this big sonic boom of a voice. And when you hear her, you know that she was born to, to, to give orders, not necessarily to take them. Oh, now, Miss Scarlett, you come on and be good and eat just little, No. Honey. I'm going to have a good time today and do my eating at the barbecue. If you don't care what folks says about this family, I does. I has told you and told you that you can always tell a lady but the way that she eats in front of folks like a bird. And I ain't aiming for you to go to Mr. John Wilkinson's and eat like a field hand and gobble like a hog. Fiddle-dee-dee. Ashley Wilkes told me he likes to see a girl with a healthy appetite. What gentleman says and what they thinks is two different things. And I ain't noticed Mr. Ashley asking for to marry you. So I was dealing with that as well in Tom's Coons, but it very much was a, a, a very detailed look at films going through various decades and these distorted images as well as achievements. And that's, that's what I did with that book. This book, Hollywood Black, it also goes through the black experience in film from the early 20th century into the new millennium. And it does look at images, but not in the way that Tom's Coons did. I mean, they're two different books, and they're companion pieces in many respects. One of the things which I point out in this book, and it's also in Tom's Coons, but early on there were black filmmakers, someone like Oscar Michaud, Noble Johnson, who struggled to make movies. 
but they saw the power of the filmic image. And so I wanted to very much deal with their experiences in, in movie making. And, of course, with Michelle, his, um, a number of his films are around, and we can, we can see them today and fully appreciate his talent and his skill. Well, you mentioned this notion of the power of the image, and it seemed like that was one of the things that Spike Lee was addressing in his recent film, Black Klansman, because he's showing Birth of a Nation being screened at a white supremacist meeting, and then he's also having his characters talk about some of these images of uh, in black exploitation. And it seemed like one of the things he was addressing in the film was the power of the image and also you know, that the filmmaker needs to think about what those images are that are going on the screen. Yes, very much so. I like Black Klansman, and I like that aspect of, of the film. One of the things with this, the power of, of film, and in some cases the power of film as propaganda, I've dealt with the fact that D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation in 1915, when it was released, it, it was a huge hit, but it was also very controversial. And the NAACP protested against it. Certain liberal groups did. And people saw at that point how film can distort history, distort culture, distort individual lives. I dealt with that in Tom's Coons, and it comes into Hollywood Black as, as well. D.W. Griffith, it's interesting that after Birth of a Nation, Hollywood backed off from that kind of controversy, that kind of blatant racism that we see with Birth of a Nation. Hollywood didn't want, it didn't want a controversy that might interfere with the box office receipts. And so you see different images. In Birth of a Nation, you know, the film climaxes with the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. It's a movie that, that opens in the days of slavery, that's idealized in the film, it follows through with the Civil War, and then the Reconstruction era, when a group of black men overtake this small southern white community. It also touched on, on this whole thing of sex and racism in America. You have these hypersexual black men who pursue white women. Nonetheless, with the controversy, the industry backed off from that kind of thing. And we get to see in the movies, which I deal with in, in Hollywood Black, also in Tom's Coons, that most of the black men we would see afterwards were to be comic, non-threatening figures and non-sexual for a long time to come. You had people like Stephen Fetchett. You had someone like Bill Bojangles Robinson. You had an actor like Willie Best. Again, these, these were people who had talent, but they were very much boxed in by the, by the roles that they had to play. And that's the thing, when black exploitation comes about, in the 1970s, and you have a new group of black filmmakers coming to the fore, people like Gordon Park Sr., who directed a movie called The Learning Tree in the late 60s and then does Shaft, and you have Melvin Van Peebles, who does Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, and you have Gordon Parks Jr., who does Superfly. They have taken, in a sense, an old type, the buck figure. They've reappropriated it, and they've politicized this figure. And they, they really touched on the, on the needs of a new audience in that period. We're talking in the 19, really, it's coming out of the late 60s and the 1970s, a younger black audience at that time that wanted strong, assertive, and sexual black movie heroes. 
but not like D.W. Griffith's. That's another thing that comes out in this in this book, and which I've dealt with in my in my work. You mentioned Oscar Micheaux, who made films in the silent era. Uh, do you feel that these films are overlooked, and is it mainly because there aren't that many of them that survive, or do you just feel because they're silent films, people tend to not want to watch them as readily? But he seems like such a groundbreaking figure in Hollywood's black history. He is groundbreaking. But, you know, Michaud also did do sound films later. In the early years following Birth of a Nation, there had been a couple black filmmakers before Birth of a Nation, but afterwards you found people really, a kind of movement of people making movies for, for black audiences and with positive images of African Americans. But Michelle got in very, very early in the teens. And there was also the Lincoln Motion Picture Company with Noble Johnson, was one of the founders. Noble Johnson was a black actor who worked in Hollywood films. But nonetheless, I think that what happened, some of his movies were rediscovered in later years, I mean, to find actual prints of them. And, and one of the ones is Within Our Gates. And, and there Michaud is dealing with a race theme and dealing with, with racism. And, and it is, it's just startling to see someone, that movie's 1920, to see someone that early tackling this and affecting an audience emotionally. The film was, was later lost to us for a long time. But to your question about with the silent films, I think that that may be, be part of it, that people don't look at silent films as much any kind of silent film, but, but I think he's definitely worth seeing. And I think audiences would those who haven't yet seen the, the silent films would be very surprised by the uh, intensity and power of his, of his work. Symbol of the Unconquered is another early one. Now, some of his films are still lost to us, but there are others around, and then there, there are the sound films. He kept working till 1947. His last film, The Betrayal, was released actually at a theater in downtown New York. But there was also this movement of filmmakers, black and white, I should say, people working outside of the Hollywood studio system who were making movies for black audiences. Uh, and these movies have become known as race movies. There were just a number of them. Some got lost, disappeared. Others are still around. There are the black westerns done in the, uh, the late 30s with Herb Jeffries. Herb Jeffries was a terrific singer. He had performed with Duke Ellington. And he was a real heartthrob, and he's a singing cowboy in his movies. He did Harlem Rides the Range, and he also did Bronze Buckaroo and others. And those are great fun. With my rope and my saddle and my horse and my gun, I'm a happy cowboy. So when the day's ending, with a setting That's Herb Jeffries singing I'm a Happy Cowboy from Two Gun Man from Harlem. I'll have more film clips, as well as more of my interview with author Donald Bogle after this short break.
KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash OLLI. I want to jump a little bit ahead in, in history and, and return to black exploitation because I was very attracted to black exploitation films because of actresses like Pam Greer and Tamara Dobson and seeing strong women on the screen, whether they be white or black. But that, that uh, you know, was a big attraction for me. But TCM recently screened Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. And I was impressed by how fresh the film still felt and how it was still able to kind of jolt the audience because it seemed like it was not only revolutionary in terms of the content, but also in terms of just the film grammar it used, the the storytelling. So I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about those black exploitation films and kind of how they changed the landscape. Well, they very definitely uh, changed the landscape. I mean, be- before black exploitation in the 50s and, and 60s, there was really basically just one black actor who was working in, in Hollywood films and who made a name for himself, and that was Sidney Poitier. Dorothy Dandridge had also made an impact in Hollywood films in the 50s with a movie like Carmen Jones. But nonetheless, Poitier was this figure, and his movies really were part of the integrationist age, black and white coming together. When you get to black exploitation, there is this idea, and this is really 60s, post-60s, and the idea that America has, has got to change. It hasn't worked out its problems dealing with race, and we haven't seen strong enough black heroes on screen. And black exploitation turns that upside down. And Van Peebles, Melvin Van Peebles with Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, really becomes this revolutionary statement. As a matter of fact, Huey P. Newton of the Black Panthers said, uh, I hope I'm quoting him correctly, it's the first uh, revolutionary film or black film. But you see in that film a black man taking his destiny into his own hands, and you see him fighting corruption. And this just roused audiences at that time. And in Shaft, it's interesting that Gordon Parks, when the first Shaft with Richard Roundtree, that the opening of that film, you see Shaft coming up from the subway into the Times Square area. And it's really this idea that this black man has been underground, and now he's coming to the fore. And you're going to see him and you're going to have to deal with him. And it's interesting that Shaft is really walking against traffic. And he's got to break the rules in order to survive. And the rules are going to have to be changed. So black exploitation is saying that that kind of uh, thing. Uh, Superfly, which was directed by Gordon Parks Jr., that one also, it, it, it deals with a drug dealer, played very well by Ron O'Neill. He wants to get out of the, the business, and he sees it's corruption, and he wants something else for himself. So you have black men announcing themselves, and then 
you get Pam Greer and you get Tamara Dobson, these black women now who um, are just as strong and tough as the black men around them. Uh, they're not shrinking violets, and they too are taking things in their own hands. Go on, stroke. I don't want to live anymore. I know. That's the idea. The rest of your boyfriend is still around. And I hope you two live a long time. And then maybe you get to feel what I feel. Death is too easy for you, bitch. I want you to suffer. And they become figures. If you see Pam Greer in Foxy Brown, or you see Tamara Dobson in Cleopatra Jones, they are there defending their community, the black community, and wiping out the, uh, or in opposition to the drug dealers and the corruptive figures, primarily whites, but not exclusively. And they are also announcing a new day. It's a great thing to see them. And by the way, you know, Pam Greer did have this feminist following that the feminists saw her as this positive figure. They put her on the cover of the old Ms. magazine. And in a sense, she was saluted. Tamara Dobson's another one who's not so well remembered today, and she's no longer living. She also with Cleopatra Jones. If I ever hear of you selling so much as a cough drop, I'm coming down on you so hard. Tamara Dobson, the Soul Sisters answer to James Bond, and the most exciting new star in years. Six feet two of dynamite, and it's all stacked. She very much is her own woman. And there's a great scene in Cleopatra Jones where she's with Bernie Casey. And Bernie Casey had been a football player in the past, and he's a tough, resilient guy. And uh, they're, uh, they're being shot at, and he's injured. And she's the one who then takes things into her hand, and she has an arsenal of weapons in her car. And she's not going to let anyone shoot her down. So those are great things to see. I should also say with black exploitation. You know, there was criticism of those films, and some criticism coming from the African-American community. There were other images during that period. You had uh, Sounder with Cicely Tyson, who, who gives a magnificent Oscar-nominated performance. You also have Diana Ross in Lady Sings the Blues. It's a romanticized version of the life of black uh, jazz performer Billie Holiday, but it's a very pleasurable movie experience. So you have those films as, as well. And, and black exploitation really doesn't last that long. I would say roughly that black exploitation goes roughly, I would say, from around 1970 uh, or 71 to about 75, 76. And then something changes. And all of these films, though, are not coming out of a social or political vacuum. They very much are reflecting the times in which they were made and the feelings of an audience. The 70s move on. America's more politically relaxed, and we get to see another kind of, of movie, and you get the rise of uh, someone like Richard Pryor and then Eddie Murphy in the 80s. These are films that often deal with the theme of interracial male bonding, but you still have these really resilient, tough-minded black heroes, that black exploitation has, has made its mark in that respect. And the films of the 80s, eventually, you know, Eddie Murphy is the 
big star. And then you have that new wave of black filmmakers coming in that, that have been influenced by black exploitation. You have Spike Lee with She's Gotta Have It, and of course with Do the Right Thing, which closes the 80s. And then you get someone like John Singleton, and you get the Hughes brothers, and, and you, get, you get others. So it's, it's a, progress, a progression with these great sort of evolutionary links from one period to one filmmaker or even one star to another. In your introduction, you mentioned that you say rarely do you go to the movies to learn anything, but we learn something nonetheless. And is that one of the reasons that kind of drives you to write these books, to, to kind of put these films into a context so that people do think a little bit more about them? Uh, yes. We don't go to think, but there is so much that seeps into our unconscious. And those distortions that are in, the, in, the, in our heads, and, and we're, we're trying to sort them out with perhaps not really thinking that we're trying to sort them out. And so with my books, it, it's to, one, to chart the history, record it, and to sort out what I see as distinctions, and perhaps to articulate what others have been feeling, I would hope, or with my view of history itself and whatever knowledge I have of history, to bring another kind of awareness to people who've been going to the, to the movies. You know, I feel ideally that with popular culture and, and writing about popular culture, that it really should reach the people who are affected by popular culture. You know, I think the writing itself should be direct. It should be immediate, just the way popular culture is. That's what we love about popular culture. And, it, and it's got an energy about it. And this is film, music. But to, to write in that way so you can reach that, that audience that really wants a comment. You know, I go to the movies. Uh, I used to go to screenings. Now I, I, I really prefer to, to be there with an audience. And to see the way the audience is responding. I saw the movie Girls Trip, which was directed by Malcolm Lee, Spike Lee's younger cousin. And uh, Malcolm Lee is a talented filmmaker. He did uh, the movies Best Man and Best Man Holiday. But when I saw Girls Trip, I saw it at the Magic Johnson Theaters in Harlem. And it was a packed house. And Girls Trip would probably be defined as a black woman's film. doesn't mean black men didn't see it and didn't enjoy it, and this is basically with the woman's film. Men see these films, too, and often like them. But nonetheless, with the audience, it was just so caught up in the movie. And, you know, really liked the movie more than <laughs> parts of that I liked. But I picked up something from the audience itself. And, and many of the women in the audience and what they were responding to. So for me in writing, history is important and bringing certain things to, to light. And if it's not necessarily answering everyone's questions, but leading people to answer questions for themselves, but not to ignore asking questions because... Popular culture, you know, it can be good and it can be bad. And as I said, those distortions, you want to sort them out. And we often have conflicted feelings. Everybody, whether it's black films, white films, whatever, 
We can have conflicted feelings about what we're seeing on screen, and it's not to dismiss those conflicting feelings. It's to bring them to the forefront and understand what what we do like and understand what may bother us about the films, but to enlighten ourselves. I mean, your book is very comprehensive in kind of looking at this whole history of Hollywood Black. If you could pick three films that you feel people really need to see that they probably haven't seen are are there three you would point to and say like if if you haven't seen these you're really like missing out i'll tell you two that there are a number uh i'll tell you two that have and this is in a very personal way that have affected me one is the movie carmen jones from 1954 and carmen jones has an all-star uh, black cast, Dorothy Dandridge, who was the first African-American woman nominated for an Oscar as Best Actress. Hattie McDaniel had won as Best Supporting Actress, but Dandridge, Best Actress, Harry Belafonte's in it, Diane Carroll, Brock Peters, Pearl Bailey, and so forth. But Carmen Jones wanted to see Dandridge and to see this image of a black woman who's determined to make her own decisions. Now, granted, it's it's based on uh, the decisions, the way the movie's written, is on her romantic situation. But still, she's, she's making her decisions. She's in a world that's really controlled by men, and she is fighting that. There's that aspect of Carmen Jones, and then there is a great sequence in Carmen Jones. It was directed by Otto Preminger, where you get, there's a uh, sort of nightclub cabaret sequence, and you see a man on the drums. He's a terrific drummer. And then you, you see his name right there uh, on the bandstand. And it's Max Roach, this fantastic drummer. And there he is. And the people dancing, there's the young Alvin Ailey who's dancing. There is Carmen DeLavalade who's dancing. There's Archie Savage, who was a member of Catherine Dunham's dance group. So there are all these cultural things going on in that very energetic, very entertaining sequence. So Carmen Jones has a certain effect for me. And then I would say Boys in the Hood that I've seen many times, and I am always emotionally affected by it. That movie came out in 91, but that movie still speaks to us in a very direct way about what has been happening in certain African-American communities. And it's, it's a powerful film. So I would say those on a personal level, but there are others. There are Charles Burnett's films, Killer Sheep. Uh, I would say Julie Dash's film, Daughters of the Dust. I would also say, I think Spike Lee's film, Do the Right Thing, retains its power. But, but those are some of the ones that I think are there. And I would say Black Panther. Because Black Panther, Ryan Coogler's movie, it's, it's part old-school entertainment. And I say this in the best sense. And I also think it's revolutionary. With the costumes, with its view of African-American culture, with this, uh, I think the women in it are revolutionary uh, figures. So that also, um, I think Get Out is terrific. What Jordan Peele does with with taking uh, a certain kind of genre and flipping it on its head. You see that the thing about Get Out, you don't know where that movie's going. You, you have no idea. 
and but you can't stop watching, and uh, it injects race into this um, what might be, you know, a, a teen horror kind of film. The movie even has a haunted house in it. So there are a number of things that I would suggest uh, for people to to see, and and that I think they would uh, they get something out of them. Moving forward, what are you seeing possibly? happening in this Hollywood landscape, and, and what's what are you hoping for in terms of what might change or what might improve? Well, the thing is, I mean, we're seeing more, uh, more African-American filmmakers come to the fore, and also in television. It's quite interesting what's happening with Issa Rae and her show, um, Insecure, her series, and Donald Glover's uh, Atlanta. It's, it's really an interesting period where we're... we're uh, and it's interesting that we're in a what's supposed to be a politically conservative period, but we, we're getting these these voices, and many people now are getting a chance to work that might not have had the chance in previous eras. I'm talking about people working behind the scenes, even in front of the scenes. You look at Viola Davis, and um, that in the past, Viola Davis. What kind of roles would she have played? But now she's gotten a chance for something else. I'm thinking mainly of uh, how to get away with murder. So it's, you know, it's a vital period. I don't think that we're really free of some of the old types. I don't feel that way. But we're on our way to a whole new revamping of cinema. So I, I see this, it's, it's another kind of movement, and I'm hoping it will continue, that something's not going to change that would once again limit the opportunities for, for filmmakers and, and, and African Americans working in television. Because it, what we're getting is really benefiting the whole culture. It's speaking to the whole culture. It's speaking in a direct way to African-Americans, but it's also speaking to another audience as well. And that's, that's important. You know, we've seen what, what rap has done, how it's, um, it's, it's reached a broad audience. And I think filmmakers can do that without compromising themselves, filmmakers and, and people working in television. So I hope it's going to continue. But, you know, there's a part of me that is still cautious. So I'm just, I'm hoping for, for the best. It would benefit us all. That was author Donald Bogle. His new book is Hollywood Black from TCM. I'll be back in two weeks with a podcast on the new film Ophelia that reimagines Hamlet from Ophelia's point of view. So till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team, Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I.